We're excited to be here today. We had a great first service, uh, much more crowded than this service, so I think more people in first than second, so that's great, and we're reduced down to two. One of our services moved over to Tiffin. It's going to help us it, while we're in two services, which we think might just be temporary, but for you to scoot in kind of to the middle, and so there's seats on the aisles, because we always want to make sure that, especially when new people come, that they can find a seat. So two services here, one in Northwood and one in Tiffin. And wouldn't it be cool if we could kind of peek in and see what's going on at Tiffin? Can we do that? Let's see. Let's see if we got it. This would have been from just a few minutes ago. Doesn't that look great? So they, they seem to go well. They, I actually heard, I don't have this verified, but somebody said that, yeah, they actually uh, needed a few more chairs than we originally set up. Again, we're waiting for a big bump, a, a big crowd, in two weeks on the 29th, and we're hoping that for every campus. But anyway, cool stuff, and please pray for that. Again, as uh, Mike was saying, in a couple weeks we have that Why Believe, and that's a big deal for us. Some of the things that I don't say often enough, and, and maybe I'm, I'm trying to change that a little bit, is uh, this last week, um, from being in other parts of the world, we've developed relationships with people all over the world, and this last week we know of a new church uh, that is also on the site of a, an, uh, a school that serves refugee kids that kind of live near a garbage dump. If you've ever seen some of those images that we have visited, uh, there's actually a school that we helped to build there. But, uh, but anyway, the, the pump, the, the lady that runs the school is named May, and they have a big submersible pump in a pond that runs water to this church and to this school, and that pump went out. The very day that it went out, we heard about it, and we were able to send funds right there to location, to people we know and trust, just like that. And I say that to say thank you to all of you, because you make that possible. That's just part of our budget. Thank you very much. So cool thing. Uh, again, we don't say that stuff enough, but that's another example of just what happened this since last Sunday. And we are in a series, All In, All Out. And then we're talking about how as believers we should be all in so that we could go all out for Jesus. And we started this series three weeks ago. We were talking about how to be a Christian is really to be a disciple. To be a Christian is to, act, to actually actively follow Jesus with our life. That's what disciple means. And every true believer is to be a disciple. And then the, the Sunday after that we talked about, hey, everything that exists, everything that we have is ultimately owned by God and we're just stewards of it for a short a time. We should honor God in that way. Last week we celebrated 80 years of grace as we've tried to remain true uh, to God's word and his message. And so now we're continuing all in, all out. We're going to talk about something that has become increasingly controversial. We're going to talk about the topic of hell because we need to be all in so that we can be all out for Jesus to rescue people from hell as their eternal destiny. And hell is real, and we're going to look what Jesus actually said about the reality of hell. And, uh, and most churches today don't mention hell. 
Many churches have denied the doctrine of hell, but Jesus warned people about hell. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. So Jesus talked about hell all the time. We don't talk even about hell as much as Jesus talked about hell. And so we're going to look at what Jesus said today. And for our text today, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 16 or tune into your device. Luke chapter 16. I want to set a little context while you're doing that. In Luke 15, Jesus has told three parables and that all taught the same thing. That is that, that, Jesus, uh, that God's out to seek and save the lost. I mean, that's why Jesus came. And everybody matters to God. In Luke 16, he tells another parable. And then he starts interacting a little bit with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a religious crowd, religious leaders who... Uh, we're really focused on doing everything exactly right, but their hearts were far from God. But they were trying to keep the law in the minute detail, but they, they're really not following God at their heart. And, uh, and so he's addressing them, and then he tells this story that has everything to do with hell. And he, again, he tells this story with the Pharisees in mind, because they're there, and they're hearing what he's saying. <clears throat> so I'll start reading verse 19. Now, there is a rich man... And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus at his side. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received the good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Well then he said, then I beg you father that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So just a couple of comments. The story is mainly about a rich man who uh, dresses in splendor, purple robes, was very expensive in the first century, is made from a dye from a sea snail and very hard to get, very little quantities. And he's got purple robes, fine linen, that's like really nice underwear. I mean, the guy's just decked out all the time and he lives just kind of in joyous splendor. And then out by his front gate is, is a man who's been uh, kind of living there, a squatter, if you will, at his front gate, who 
is begging. He's malnourished. He's hungry. He's infected. He's covered with sores. Now, and he's named. The rich man, it's really about the rich man. The rich man's not named. And the only time in any of his parables Jesus actually names somebody, but he names uh, the poor man's name is Lazarus. And it's just talking about kind of a, a learning lesson for us that God cares about what we consider the least of people. But, uh, and then it talks about how <clears throat> the dogs come and lick his sores. And I think sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, how nice. But that's not the way it's written. That's not the way it's meant. Uh, in, the, in the first century, dogs were not house pets in the first century in the Middle East. They were uh, just scavengers that led, led, lived on the edges of towns and ate garbage. And to lick you, they, that would make you unclean. And they're licking his sores. And he doesn't even have the energy uh, because he's so weak to even shoo them away to keep the dogs from licking him, which renders him unclean as, as a Jewish man. And it, so that, they kind of have a dim view of dogs. And, you know, if they think that way about dogs, who knows what they thought about cats back in the first century? Because it would be way worse, I'm assuming. They're not even mentioned in the Bible. But, you know, that's another story. But anyway, so dogs are sort of bad. And, and this is Lazarus. And, you know, he is just in, in dire, dire straits. And, and, the, and, and so here's what I want us to say. When we talk, and so this is Jesus telling a story where he has Abraham talking to the replying to the rich man and it answers a bunch the story that Jesus tells answers a bunch of questions of course the major question in our day is this anytime you talk about hell mention hell here's the whole question of our culture tell me if you've heard this before how can a loving God send somebody to eternal torment and hell how can a loving God do that how many have heard that question asked today we're going to hear the answer to this question but before we answer that question which is the main question everybody has in our culture we need to answer a couple other questions first so we're going to answer two questions and we'll get back to that question and, and the first question is we just got to know what we're talking about so the first question we need to answer is what is hell and here's the thing here's the kind of the mind-blowing thing a proper understanding of the doctrine of hell is necessary for us to understand the love of God. I know that doesn't sound right, but it's true. We have to properly understand the doctrine of hell for us to fully appreciate God's love. So, what, so when we're answering what is hell, first of all, hell is not a place where you will go party with your friends. That's another common thing. Well, if there is a hell, you know, I'm going to be there with my friends and we're going to have a good time. That's not hell, as we can see in Jesus' story. And Jesus said a lot of things about hell. Never do we get any indication that anybody's having a good time. That doesn't happen. And I've talked to people who I I'm, was very close to who would sometimes answer that way. Actually, I've talked to many people who have answered that way. Well, you know, if I end up in hell, then I'll be with these other people. No, it's not a place where you have a good time. It's not a place where you're even glad that they're there. Notice, he's saying, make sure my brothers don't come here. And so we need to remember that. So what is hell? Well, hell is a, a place originally intended for demons. That's what it was created for, Matthew 25, 41 tells us. But it's a literal place. Where now people who reject Jesus will spend their eternity where they'll be punished and separated from God. Hell 
is, and then people say, well, then there's no hell. There's soul sleep or there's this or that. No. Hell, Scripture says, whether we like it or not, Scripture says is conscious torment. Conscious torment that lasts in eternity. Some, some people say, especially today we hear, well, this fiery hell idea, that's just a metaphor. That's just a picture that's being used to describe something else, but that's not literal. It's a metaphor. So people say that, and you can, you can have that view if you want, but here's what I need to, to share with you. Every time a metaphor is used in the Bible, every single time, the reality far exceeds the metaphor. So here's what I mean by that. If fiery hell is a metaphor, if you believe that, then here's what Jesus is saying. That the reality of hell is way worse than burning in torment for eternity. That's what Jesus is telling us. So if you think it's a metaphor, you can think that, but then know that by your own thought, the reality is much worse than that. It doesn't help you get away from that. The experience of hell in Scripture, actually a few weeks ago, we were at the end of one of our passages, Jesus said, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it's always described as a place of burning, of darkness, of grief. Um, it's just not a good place. And hell is eternal. It's forever and ever. It goes on and on and on, just like heaven is eternal. Now, I know some people, a lot of people here come from religious traditions that teach about a purgatory. There's no purgatory in the Bible. It's just not there. And so a purgatory is a place, sort of a temporary place of the dead. And then, but you're in a kind of a, a holding area where you have a chance to work yourself out of it. That's purgatory. But purgatory, it's not a word that's in the Bible. The concept is never in the Bible. Even the story's telling us that that's not a concept in the Bible. There is no purgatory. Hell is a place when people die, they either go to heaven or hell, and both of them are eternal. Eternal. And here's our problem. We don't understand what eternity looks like. Mike, you ready here? So Mike's going to help me illustrate that. So here's a string. And so on this string, I have a piece of tape. And we'll say that this is the timeline of our life from conception on. And the time we spent on earth is marked by this inch of tape. Got it? All right. Now here is eternity. All right, go on. So if this is our entire life, this is our eternity. Keep on going, Mike. Just take it right out in there, right in through the other lobby. Yeah, keep on going. Keep on going. Yeah, go right out those doors. Yeah, into the parking lot. Keep on going. Keep on. Actually, he lives over there, so he's probably just heading over to his house. So do you understand? And do you realize that he could run completely around the earth and come in this back door, which he's not going to do. But, and that still would not be eternity. Here, here's what I'm saying. We, it's so hard for us to understand the concept of eternity. If this string started wrapping the earth over and over, it would still just this inch would represent our life on earth. Even if we lived 80 or 100 years, it would just be an inch, just a drop in the bucket. Almost nothing compared to eternity. And God is telling us, we, 
every single person, that our souls are eternal and that we all face an eternal destiny either with God or away from God. That's what Scripture says. That's what Jesus says. And here's another thing, because that sounds so horrendous to us. Then we start, we need to know this. Hell is just. You see, the problem, we start thinking about eternity, 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 and torment. Then we're thinking, there's nothing I can do during this short time of my life that deserves eternity in hell. But Scripture's telling us, no, you don't understand how serious your sin is. That you've been created by God, given life by God. God has revealed himself to you, and you've rejected him. You've turned away. You've lived your own life. You've failed to acknowledge God with your life. You've committed wrong against God, injustice against God and other people, and wrongs against God and other people. And that the, the correct punishment for that is eternity separated from God in torment. What scripture says is the punishment actually fits the crime. We just keep we just keep in our minds we lessen our crimes against God. But scripture tells us the reality. God is loving and merciful, but he is first holy and righteous. And there is a hell. And and then hell what what is hell? Well, hell's also hopeless. That there's, there, it's forever, you, can't, you cannot change your destiny. And that's illustrated in this story. Your fate is sealed, there's no escape. Jesus is teaching us through this story that, that nothing can change our fate after death. So that's what is hell. So the next question before we get to the big question is, well, why is there a hell? Why would God do this? How does that make sense? Even though, so we know what it is. Well, why is it? Well, It's really the nature of God and the nature of us as human beings, the way he created us. Our natures really demand hell. For example, God's justice, God's justice and human depravity, that means our sin, God's justice and human depravity demands that there be a hell. And again, God has created us. He gave us life and he gave us freedom to love God back or not love God. And he couldn't make us love him back because then it wouldn't be real love. It would be forced. It would just be something we had to do. So along with the freedom to willingly love God back comes the choice to not love God back and not want anything to do with God. So in God's universe, God's sovereignty... God's justice demands that sin be punished. We all want justice. We all think if there's justice, that's a good thing. And so we all, you know, so there's justice out there and it's it's fallible. Sometimes it's good and sometimes we're looking at things going, well, hold it, that wasn't justice. They kind of got away with something there. But God says there will be perfect justice. Perfect justice is coming for each and every person in the universe. That's what God is telling us, which is interesting to me. Because we accuse God. Well, how could God do that? But we never would accuse a good judge of sentencing a murderer to death. We would say, well, yeah, he deserved that. 
But we accuse God when He deals righteously with sin. When we do that, when we do that, we're wrong. And here's God saying, there is going to be perfect justice, no bribes, no secrets, no payoffs. Perfect justice. What's interesting about this story is that the rich man doesn't say to Abraham when he when he's communicating, he doesn't say what we what we would all imagine that he would say. Because all of us are thinking that if we were ever in hell, say we didn't know Christ or somebody that we knew went to hell or somebody we thought was a pretty good person but they went to hell, you know, what we think that the number one question in hell is going to be, whoa, 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 God, what did I do to deserve this? God, the punishment is way more than the crime. God, this is too much. I don't deserve this much punishment. And, and it's really questioning God's judgment. Where this man, he doesn't say any of that. He's not, he's not saying this is unjust. It's like he understands the punishment fits the crime. He just asks for temporary relief. And then when he doesn't get that, he asks for a warning for his brothers. And he seems to understand that his fate is right. It's just. It's the punishment fits the crime. But we don't understand that and maybe fully appreciate it until after we die. Here's the thing. When you think about being separated from God... So we have this free will. We've all used it to sin. And when we sin, that's against God. But how many of you, as a believer, you've sinned against God in either thought or action? And maybe it's something you've struggled with before. And you're just like, have you ever had one of those moments where you're just kind of disgusted with yourself? Where you're just like, wow, I can't believe I'm struggling with it. I can't believe, you know, I did that. Wow, how could I slip up and do this? I know that's wrong. How could that have happened? How could I have let that happen? Well, have you ever been kind of tormented by yourself? You don't have to raise your hands, but I have. You know, I'll be like, what, what is wrong with me? In hell, I think that's the way it is all the time. That your own conscience torments you for eternity. That you know that you've done wrong. You know that you violated God. That, that you know what you did is not right. And you know there's no escape for that. It, that we will have this relentlessly accusing conscience. Why? Because guilt produces shame. And, and shame in an extreme sort of produces self-hating. Of course, and, and then we have a culture that says, oh, guilt. Yeah, that whole Christian that gives you we're all guilty of different things, whether against God or each other. We can't deny guilt. Christianity has the answer for guilt. We're all guilty. Christianity has the way for our guilt to be removed from us. And it's not by saying everything we do is okay. It's by a Savior. And so why hell? Well, not only is it because of God's justice and our depravity, but also it's because of... Uh, God's sovereignty and human dignity. God's sovereignty means that God's ultimately in control of the universe. And so for him to be in control, that, and he's saying he's just, then that demands that there be some way for sin to be punished. For there to be justice, wrong has to be punished. If wrong is not punished, there is no justice. 
If God is ultimately sovereign, if he's really in control, and he's also really just, then there has to be a hell. But it's not just God's sovereignty that demands it, his nature. It's also our nature. Human dignity demands it. That he has given us free will. That he has made us sort of free moral agents. And human dignity means, hey, if I don't want anything to do with God, God honors that. If I don't want anything to do with God for my entire life, then I get nothing to do with God for my entire eternity. We get what we get in eternity, what we've wanted our entire life, and that is to be separated from God, to not want to do anything with God, to not have God as part of our life. It's, if free choice is real, if we can really choose anything, there has to be a hell, or we would be forced to worship God, which we didn't want to do. So that's why hell, and, and then last why hell is, and this is the hard one, because God's love demands it. What? What are you saying, Kevin? God's love demands a hell? God's love demands it. Love doesn't force. Love pursues. Love persuades, but love doesn't coerce. Love doesn't force. God wouldn't be loving if he made you do what you in your own dignity didn't want to do. That's what he's telling us. So, and that brings us to that big question. The big question, now we've got the background. What is hell? Why there's a hell now? How can a loving God... Send people to hell. You're going to be asked this as a believer. And you need to have an answer. Because in our culture today, it's okay to talk about love and the love we should have for people. And once in a while on a talk show, you actually hear somebody say that God is loving, that God loves. And they're exactly right when they say that. What you will not hear is that God judges. That a loving God judges people and he is the rightful judge and the penalty for our sin is hell forever. You, nobody wants to hear about a judging God. That's what you don't hear. People don't like that. It's offensive because our culture does not tolerate talk about a God of judgment. Because the idea of this loving God punishing people, it's offensive to people and in our culture they can't stand anything that might be offensive. It's interesting. There's, a, there's now a new movement even among pastors and Christian leaders to deny the existence of hell. And here's basically what they say. They say the existence of hell, even though it's in the Bible, the concept, is really incompatible with the love of God. And, and so what they try to do in their ministries is they try to say, I'm going to make God more loving by getting rid of hell. Because hell is incompatible with a loving God. But actually, they don't make God more loving. They actually, when they get rid of the doctrine of hell, they make God less loving. How's that? Well, let me explain it to you. 
If you're talking to somebody and they kind of hit you with, uh, hey, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe God sends anybody to hell because God's love. Well, God's love, yes, but God does, you know, people go to hell. Then you just need to ask them this question. Oh, you don't, you believe in God, but you don't believe in, okay, then here's what you ask. How much did it cost God to love you? How much did it cost God to love you? And there's only two answers they're going to give you. They're either going to try to stick with the Bible and they're going to go to the cross. And they're going to say, well, God loved me so much that Jesus died on the cross. Okay, great answer. But if there's no hell, there's no need of a cross. If there's no hell, then Jesus didn't need to die. If there's no hell, then that's overacting on God's part. That's, that's needless torment and torture for the Son of God. If there's no hell, God didn't need to do any of that. Jesus didn't need to do any of that. The Son didn't need to be tortured and killed. Makes no sense. Or, if they don't go that way, they'll say, well, I don't think it, because God's love, it didn't cost God anything to love me. And there you have it. Oh. Your God is less loving than my God. Because for God to love me, it cost him everything. The death of his son. And so in an attempt to make God more loving, they, they, they reject the doctrine of hell. And they actually, in doing so, make God less loving because God has not... We, we don't... We don't appreciate what God has saved us from and the price that God paid to do it. We say things like, well, God sends people to hell, but we forget that people choose separation from God. And they get in eternity what they've chosen all their life. So here's what we need to remember. God's love does not negate his justice, nor his righteousness, nor his holiness. And God's justice does not negate his love. Because in love, he provided the only way of escape. Let me, let me say it a different way. So some people, they just reject this idea that God, the creator and all-powerful sovereign God, would demand that sin be paid for. Seems a little unreasonable. And the price is too high, we would say. But, you know, why does he have to demand that? Well, because he's perfectly just. But here's the thing that we forget to enter into the equation. Yes, God demands that sin be paid for, but God is, is offering to pay the price for us. God pays. God pays our debt. God is offering. He, Jesus died for our sin. He paid the price for us. For us, yes, is he a demanding judge? Yes, he is. But he paid the price so we don't have to. So what's our argument? We have no argument. Unless we just don't want to submit to God. And that's the issue. So how can a loving God send people? It's only logical that he would. And it's only because of his love that hell is a reality that shows us his love. And he pays the price for the only way to escape. Not us. He does. And the last question we're going to ask, one more question might be this. Why does Jesus talk about hell all the time? So it's a reality for eternity, but we're not in eternity when we hear about this. So why is Jesus telling us all this? 
Well, first of all, Jesus is telling this. He's saying this to the Pharisees and the people that are hearing him. And it's recorded in scripture as a warning for us. Jesus tells this story to warn his hearers. He talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible as a warning. A warning that we need to be saved. Why do we use that terminology? Saved. Saved from the just consequences of our sin. Every one of us. And then people say, well, why doesn't God just warn us? Why doesn't he just come down and physically warn everybody? Have you ever talked? I've had people say that to me. Why doesn't he just come and warn us? Why doesn't he do a miracle? He has. He has warned us. First of all, he warns us in Scripture, which this story is circling back to. By the way, the Bible is the number one book in the world. Number one. Number one bestseller every year. It's not like, oh, the Bible some mysterious book. It's the most popular book in the world. And he warns us through Jesus, the most famous person in all of history. I mean, we shouldn't be able to miss this. Not only that, we have general revelation. Every day we get up and see birds singing and, and tornadoes or whatever it is, we see, wow, there's something going on here. And when bad things happen, that's not normal. This happens, something's interrupted this. What's going on? We see all this stuff. That's all evidence of a creator that people want to ignore and say this all just poof, came from nothing. We'll throw in some billions of years. He's revealed himself to us. What more do we want? Well, this is what the rich man is saying. No, go work, then have, have, he's still ordering Lazarus around, which is kind of interesting. He's in hell, but Lazarus, some poor man that he apparently didn't help much during his life, and he's telling Abraham, hey, get Lazarus to do this for me, and get Lazarus to do that for me, and this, this, this. By the way, this is not the Lazarus Jesus raised from the dead. This whole nother story, right? He's still ordering Lazarus around. And, he, and what's the rich man saying? Well, if Lazarus came, they, they, they know I died. They know Lazarus died. That means he was aware of Lazarus. If he comes back from the dead, boom, miracle, they're going to believe. And Jesus has Abraham saying, so Jesus is telling us basically, a, a, a miracle is not going to make them believe. Well, they'll see this miracle. And Jesus says, well, they have the law and the prophets, which, which is scripture. They have the Bible. That's the Bible of the Old Testament, which is what they had when Jesus was talking. They didn't have the New Testament yet. He said, they have the Bible. They have the law and the prophets. And he's saying, yeah, they know the law and the prophets, but that's not enough if he comes back from the dead. And then Jesus says, no, even if he came back from the dead, that won't be enough to make them believe. By the way, months after this, Jesus rises from the dead and many people still don't believe. Even that lived then. See, here's the deal. Scripture, miracles happen a few times in a few periods during the writing of the Bible. So they're a lot more limited than we think. But when they happened, not everybody believed. The miracle that, and here's the problem. Let's say, and I've had people talk, well, it just seemed like if Jesus would come and split the sky open, which is going to happen one day, but it'll be too late. But if he just did that now for us, split it open and says, look, I'm real, the Bible's real, you need to, you need to clean up your act. 
You know what would happen? A bunch of people start cleaning up their act. Their behavior would change. But their heart wouldn't. Because why would they be doing that for self-preservation? For selfish reasons? Oh, I have to. He's right there. He's watching me. I can see him watch me. Scary. I'd do this right. I don't want to do it right, but I have to do it right. You see, fear can bring a change of behavior, but fear never brings a change of heart. God wants us to love him back. So God's telling us this is the best way that he's told us, that he's revealed himself. So we can know why he would die and why he would come back. We know the why of it. And the why draws us in with love, not just fear. So yeah, we want to fear God in the, respect, in, the, in the sense of wanting to respect God. But we want to love him. And love will change our heart, which will then result in a change of behavior by our own free will. That's Christianity. That's what Christianity is. The realities of eternal hell, eternal punishment, they're frightening. And they're disturbing, especially for those of us who have lost loved ones who don't know Jesus. It's not fun to think about. But it's good, it's necessary for us to understand the concept because it leads us to seek the good news that God's giving to us. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And God doesn't want anyone to perish. Regarding his coming back, as I said, when it's going to be too late for everybody, that's going to happen. And why hasn't it happened? It's been 2,000 years. Why not now? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, "The The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's telling us, hey, I'm coming back. But he delays so more and more people can come to Christ. But it's not forever. Time is short. We don't know when. And that is motivating everything we do here at Grace. Everything we do. So why do, we, why do we have a Northwood campus? Why do we have a Tiffin campus? Why are we doing what we're doing here in Fremont? Why are we sending a mailing? That costs money. Why are we doing, you know, all, why are we doing all this stuff? Because we're constantly trying to evaluate what can we do in order to win people to Christ and to equip our people to win people to Christ and also that people would grow closer to God. And so we evaluate everything. So all our programs that could come and go, we evaluate. And we struggle with this all the time. You, you just don't hear about it. Right now our struggle, upward basketball. Probably shouldn't have said that. But anyway, we're, you know, we're just thinking about that. Is, boy, this is burning out our volunteers. Hard to get people to do it. And, you know, it, it just, and then we're just constantly evaluating that again because our goal is not teaching kids basketball. Our goal is introducing kids to Jesus and, and getting parents to come to church. And so we're trying to just figure that. So right now we're on the bubble. You know, and so if you're concerned about what we're needing is people to step up for leadership. This is not a guilt thing. So, you know, we, it might be better that we stop. I don't know. We're trying to figure it out. But, you know, we need a lot more. A lot of help if we're going to do it. Not saying we are. We're trying to figure it out. So if that's dear to your heart or God's telling you something, we like, but I don't mean just coaching. I mean leadership. My point, uh, 
not putting you out of guilt trap. I'm just saying, we're just trying to figure what can we do to do what God wants us to do. How do we accomplish that? So we're constantly evaluating. There are good things, like upwards a great thing, good thing. But we but there might be something better that we ought to be doing. We're trying to figure that kind of stuff out. Why? Because we want people to hear the gospel. We have this news that we want people to hear. And it's all about our, our eternal destiny. It's, hey, God, there is a God. He exists. He created you. He loves you. He even created you. He loved you so much. He gives you choice to whether you want to love him back or not. And we've all not loved him back at certain times in our life. And we've all sinned against him. And we all deserve punishment for that sin. And we can kind of understand that. What we always don't understand is that punishment is severe and it's eternal. Here's what I'm saying. Kevin Pinkerton, for the sins I've committed in my life, I deserve eternal torment separated from God that goes on and on and on and on. That's what Kevin Pinkerton deserves for my sins. And the same is true for you. But God loves. God is just and he will punish all sin. But God also loves and so he sent his one and only son Jesus, part of the Trinity, part God, all God, all man, part of the Godhead. He sends Jesus to come, clothe himself in humanity, live a perfect life, no sin, only one qualified to die for somebody else's sin. Then infinite God allows himself to be tortured to death, put to death by his own creation. He's resurrected in three days. He spends 40 days on earth and ascends into heaven. But infinite God, for that time, paid my infinite price for eternity. Finite man, Kevin Pinkerton, finite. The infinite cost for my sin is infinite torture. Infinite separation from God. But infinite God can accomplish for a time what would take finite Kevin forever to accomplish. And Jesus pays for my sin in a moment of time. It's an even trade. Because God is infinite. And all I have to do is respond in faith. As a matter of fact, I, I'm not done yet. I'm going to talk about something else. But before I even get there, I think we should just stop right now and make sure this is the most important decision anybody will ever make. To make sure you get this and you know. I'd like everyone right now to bow your heads. Here's what I'm, I want you to think through this. Do you know a time in your life where you have repented, turned to Christ, asked for forgiveness, realized that you deserved hell forever and Jesus paid for your sin? And through, and once he's done that, through faith, we can be forgiven, faith in Jesus. And so if you're not sure about this, because we, 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 we don't think we're that bad, or we think our goodness somehow kind of helps us be saved, and none of that's true. So here's what I'm asking you. If you're not 100% sure that you have 
trusted in Christ, realizing that you owe everything and there's nothing you can contribute. It's all a gift from Jesus. Right now, I will help you verbalize your faith in Jesus. And we'll just do that in a prayer. And so you just make this your prayer. You don't even have to say it out loud. God knows your every thought. He knows everything about you and me. And so that you would right now pray something like this to God. Father in heaven, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm asking you for forgiveness. And I know the only way that can happen is that Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. And I'm putting my faith, my trust in Jesus and him alone. I know I can do nothing of my own besides fall on your mercy and your grace. And God, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my life through the Holy Spirit. Lord, and help me follow you in life. In every area, just help me do that because I'm not very good at it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's keep our heads bowed just for a moment. Let me just try to seal this up for you. If you prayed that prayer and for the first... And as far as you know, that's the first time that you actually approached God that way. Not with a set of words, just with that understanding that you placed your faith in Christ. I'd like you to just hold up your hand for a minute. Just, and then just so we can pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. And I'm going to go on with my sermon in a minute. But I want to just stop. Thank you. Just put your hand up. Let me see you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just put it up. Let me see it. Thanks. Thank you. Back there. Thanks. And then right back down. Thank you. Thank you. You can put them down. Thanks. You can look up. Thank you. Here's what I'm telling you. If you just prayed that prayer, whether you raise your hand or not, and you meant it, you were sincere, you never have to worry about an eternity in hell. God has saved you. You can never get unsaved. Jesus is holding you. John 10 talks about that. And God is holding you. You're his forever. You have eternal life. You'll be with God forever. But here, I want to talk before we close to the rest of us, those who are believers. If you know, I didn't need to pray that prayer. I know that I've given my life to Christ. Here's my challenge for you. People all around us are facing an eternity in hell that we wouldn't want for our cat, let alone for a person that we know. What are we going to do about it? So here's what I'm asking you. We got this, we, people invite people to church every Sunday and we love that. Everybody's welcome to come. We think we do a good job with visitors every Sunday. But on the 29th, two weeks from today, it, we begin a series that's made for people who don't know Jesus. It's made for people who are new, who are skeptical. They want answers about Christianity. Start September 29th in two weeks. So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking you to commit between now and then for the next, say, two or three weeks that you would figure out five people that you know that you don't think are believers and that you would start praying for them. That you would start praying for five people and that three of them you would invite to come to church beginning our Why Believe series. And if you miss the first Sunday, there's the next Sunday. I mean, it'll be going on for a few weeks. But the earlier they get there, the more they'll catch of that. And so I'm asking you to commit, if you're a believer, 
to think of five people. Hopefully you know them by name. If you don't, figure out their names. Find out their names. Good first step. You'll pray for five people you, you think don't know Jesus. And in the next two or three weeks, you'll invite three of them to come. I'd like you to stand right now. Uh, the band's coming out. I'm going to close in prayer. And here's what, if you are committing to doing this, if you're going to do your best to make this happen, then while we're, while Tim's closing us in song, I want you to come forward. I have these baskets. There's a basket over there. There's one here, one there, and one over on the other side of the steps. And they just have these black bands. It just says pray and invite. Just a reminder. If you're committing to this, we want to help you keep your commitment. So we just ask you to wear this band the next two or three weeks. Pray and invite to help you to remember to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the open, tender hearts of the people who responded to you today. And Lord, that they'd feel your presence. Lord, that they would grow in you and that our church could be a part of that. And Father, for those of us who are believers also, that have been believers for a while, Lord, that, that we would commit to doing everything we can to rescue people from an eternity separated from you that you keep warning us about. Help us to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So during this song, come, grab, if, you, if you're committing, grab a band, go back to your seat, and Tim's going to close us out after the song. Thank you.